the economist Keynes, who uh, some other economists saying, well, in the in the long run, something works out. And Keynes said, well, in the long run, we're all dead, right? Um, and so we've been talk- hearing about demographics of destiny and the oncoming democratic uh, majority since I think the, the early 1990s, right? Um, and so it hasn't happened yet. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hello, I'm Andy Gawthorpe, a historian and columnist, and I'm the host of America Explained. We've got a great episode coming up today, but first I'd like to tell you just a little bit about the show. America Explained is a new podcast. It's a family-run podcast, just like Grandma and Grandpa used to listen to. And that means we're starting out small, and we'd really benefit from your help as we try to grow the show. Please remember to subscribe to America Explained so you always see new episodes in your feed. There's also an America Explained Facebook page, where we post written commentary and where we're building an international community of listeners. If you really want to help us grow, consider leaving us a 5-star review in iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use. This helps us find new listeners, and it's a great way to grow the podcast. We'll be so grateful for this help. In the meantime, enjoy today's show, and remember, you can always email us on producer at america-explained.com with any questions or comments. It's been two weeks since the American election, and we now have enough information about the outcome to start to ask some bigger questions about what the result tells us about the current state and the future of American politics, and that's what we're going to do in this episode. It's clear that the result of the 2020 election saw the continuation of many long-running trends in American politics, so there are many ways in which the election didn't really surprise us. Um, This includes the continuation of the Republican Party's built-in advantage in the Electoral College and in the elections for the House of Representatives and the Senate. The election also saw the continuation of these processes that political scientists call polarization and sorting by which it sometimes seems that America has been split into two halves, each with a radically different set of ideological commitments, a very different way of life, and they're represented by two increasingly homogenous and and very different political parties. So Republicans are increasingly the party of rural white voters, and the Democrats are increasingly the party of more diverse urban areas. But there's also some aspects of the results of this election, which why we we, we may not exactly call them surprises, but they do appear a bit anomalous. So these include the very high level of turnout. It was the highest turnout in an American presidential election in a century. We also saw an apparent small shift, but a small but notable shift of non-white voters towards the Republican Party. And we saw the emergence of a large block of suburban voters who did what's called splitting their tickets, voting for Biden as president, but Republicans for Congress. And it's ultimately this group of voters who denied the Democrats control of the Senate and and ate away a little bit of their majority in the House of Representatives while still delivering the presidency to Biden. So these are all really important trends to understand. They, They sometimes seem a bit contradictory. They sometimes seem a bit anomalous. And, you know, we're wondering what we can learn about this for the future of American politics. Well, in order to unpack some of these questions, I spoke to Joshua Robinson, a political scientist who works at my very own Leiden University, where he specializes in studying public opinion and political communication. 
Josh provided a whole bunch of great insights into these questions, so I really hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. So, hi, Josh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, having me. So the election was two weeks ago now, um, and I just thought it'd be interesting to begin by getting kind of your uh, take on your personal experience of, of watching the election. So how, how did you feel on, on Tuesday night in, in those few days afterwards? And were there a few kind of moments that really stood out in your memory? So that's a very good question. I'm probably in, in some ways an um, unrepresentative person because I just went to bed. Uh, <laughs> I didn't stay, I mean, because, you know, we're... we're <laughs> six, seven hours behind. So I had learned my lesson from the 2016 election where I stayed up for quite a long time looking at the New York Times' needle, go back yeah. and forth, back and forth, back and yeah. forth. <laughs> I just went to bed. Um, uh, so, I, I, and I think anybody living in Europe uh, watching European uh, American politics, just go to bed at night, you know, just uh, keep up in the morning. <laughs> um, I think, you know, my reaction in the morning, I, I, I had kind of gone in expecting... Um, more or less what we ended up getting, this kind of slog, although I was thinking maybe it would be a little bit closer to a Biden victory just at, on election night. Um, uh, and we could maybe talk about why that is or isn't the case uh, due to Florida and so on. And so I was a little bit, when I did wake up all fresh-eyed and and, and uh, ready to see the elections, a little uh, uh, surprised at how close it was. But then I think by the time it hit, our time that evening, it had become pretty clear that the count was trending in the ways we kind of thought it would trend towards Biden. And so at that point, it was more about um, just waiting for the final, you know, acts to kind of follow, I think, um, which I think took a few more days. <laughs> yeah, I I really wish that I'd listened to your advice about uh, going to bed because I didn't do that. I, I told myself, OK, I'm going to stay up until the Florida result comes in and hoping, well, yeah. If Biden wins Florida, then that's basically it. Um, but he didn't, obviously. So yeah. the moment when the um, result drops from Miami-Dade is just burned into my skull. You know, that's when I realized <laughs> that this was going to be a long night. And I, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, in, two, in, in 2016, the, the earliest returns from Florida looked good for Clinton. And that's the moment at which I went to bed. And I was in the Netherlands at this point. And then I woke up in the morning and saw Trump wins. And I thought, holy God. So I kind of wanted <laughs> to avoid something like that this year. But yeah, there's, there's, there's no good solution to this. I guess, yeah. but um, so uh, what what I really want to do in this episode is to talk about um, firstly some of the structural factors which shape the outcome of American elections, and then to kind of use those as a baseline to talk about what happened in in twenty twenty. I think that the first factor which is so influential in determining the outcome of American elections is this built-in advantage that Republicans enjoy. Um, in American political institutions currently. So the if we take the, the three institutions, the Electoral College, the House, and the Senate, the map is tilted towards the GOP by about 3% in the Electoral College, about 4 in the House, and about 6 to 7 in the Senate. So what that means is that in the elections for these institutions, the Electoral College and Congress, the Republican Party can afford to lose by between 3 and 7% and still obtain a majority in those institutions. And, you know, that's why even, you know, on election night, we knew who was going to win the popular vote, but we weren't sure who was going to become president. So there's this disconnect between winning the most votes and winning power in American politics. 
And even though many European countries don't have perfect electoral systems, that's still a really striking fact for anyone looking at American politics from the outside, and indeed to anyone, anyone looking at it from the inside as well. So why is it that this advantage for the Republican Party currently exists in the elections to America's most important political institutions? That's a big question. Um, and so I think uh, one initial thing to keep in mind that is that word currently, right? Uh, the GOP currently has that type of advantage, but it hasn't always been. I mean, it's, it's kind of vastly the Democrats in the mid uh, 20th century had a, a very sizable back uh, end of support due to the kind of one party uh, uh, demo democratic kind of dominance of the South as well. Um, so why is that? Um, so uh, we can think about this in a very long term, but the, 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 the meat and potatoes of it is that these American political institutions, the Electoral College and the Senate in particular, um, give a little bit of um, extra support for, in some sense, controlling land, controlling kind of smaller, more uh, uh, rural areas of the country, the Dakotas and, and so on and so forth. Um, and there has been a substantial degree of geographic polarization. Uh, uh, don't want to overstate that, but there has been a kind of a tremendous degree of uh, polarization such that over the past 10 to 15 years, the Republicans have gained greater um, support, like so less dense areas of the country that there's many of them that exist, right? Um, and so you've, I think many of your listeners will probably have seen these these maps of electoral returns where it's just like this sea of red and kind of these blue pockets. And of course, these blue pockets represent many, many, many people. They're kind of these dense populated areas. Um, whereas these, uh, a lot of the red areas just, is very is literally land with some people, but because of the setup of the Senate and the Electoral College, that kind of gives the, the parties that can gain support within those areas kind of a, a greater deal of leeway. This links really interestingly then to also the process of sorting that's taken place in the electorate, you know, over the last, uh, well, I mean, it's a process that's been going on for a long time, but I think particularly over the last 20 or 30 years, it, it's become quite acute. And so this is basically the fact that um, Republicans have won the support overwhelmingly of rural regions, which gives them this geographic advantage. Because as you say, you know, there's, there's basically more counties, like more states, and fewer people living in them. But this translates into more Senate seats and more votes in the Electoral College. Could you speak a little bit about this process of geographic sorting? So how that how that's unfolded uh, for both of the parties? Um, and so one thing your reader, your listener, your readers, your listeners should probably you know think about is that the United States has been nominally a two party uh, system since the 1860s or so. But for much of the the period between the 1860s and the 1960s or 70s, even 80s. Those two parties were substantially bisected by important internal divisions, um, ideologically, geographically, racially, and so on, um, such that the, you would have a substantial share of you know, liberal Republicans, primarily in the Northeast and Midwest, and also Southern Democrats in particular. But really in the 1960s, as the party begins to taking on, the Democratic Party takes on a much more coherent kind of uh, racial liberalism in via the support of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and, uh, and so on and so forth, you begin to see this, this really this generation-long trend wherein the uh, southern states of the United States, which were dominated by the Democrats, this one-party system, really, 
is starts to get broken up. You see this generational replacement where Southern Democrats start becoming re Southern Republicans, um, which means that a lot of Southern kind of conservatives become Southern kind of conservative Republicans rather than conservative Democrats. And you see the, the inverse of that happening in the Northern uh, and Midwest, where you start seeing kind of these liberal to moderate Republicans becoming liberal to moderate Democrats. Onto that kind of uh, racial realignment, you have an additional set of, uh, you have what um, some scholars such as Jeffrey Lehman call conflict extension. So you have the, from the New Deal period onward, you have this polarization over economic issues. Um, from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, you have this kind of rejiggering of the parties along these racial, this racial axis. You then have in the 1980s and 90s, this, uh, uh, the layering on top of that, a similar polarization, a similar kind of working out along kind of cultural issues, abortion, homosexuality, and drugs, where again, you had parties that were a little bit uh, cross-cut, a little bit divided, becoming more coherent, more coherent. And so you have all of these kind of different policy value and value-based and group-based divisions, which oftentimes were cross-cutting one another, getting layered on top of each other in a more coherent kind of uh, a less conflictual way in some sense. And that that is kind of just continued uh, uh, down uh, the line. So now we are seeing kind of, a, I think, a stronger a substantial degree of educational polarization. So you have this shift towards Democrats over the past 10 years, if not longer, for college-educated individuals, many of them tending to live in both suburban and urban areas. And so you've kind of got this layering of these different types of political and social divisions on top of one another. And so then when you, you end up getting areas where, say, they're more rural, they're older, there's... Uh, uh, different uh, levels of educational attainment. There's different kind of political values that are much more polarized or distinct from areas which are more dense, which have higher levels of economic growth, educational attainment, and so on and so forth. And so everything is just kind of pulling apart in that sense. Just to dwell on this this point about sorting a bit, because I think that it, it's very strange sometimes for people who aren't too familiar with American political history to learn that if you go back 50 or 60 years, that there wasn't necessarily a strong correlation between being a liberal and a Democrat and being a conservative and a Republican. And, you know, if if you go back, say, 100 years, then there was no real correlation between the density of the community that you lived in and the party that you voted for. But now density is a huge predictor of um, how an area will vote. So urban areas, you know, go for the Democrats overwhelmingly, and rural areas go for the Republicans overwhelmingly. And, it, and it's kind of, it's no surprise then, actually, that we we end up with basically this battle over the suburbs, right? <laughs> so, you know, the, the areas that are somewhere in between are, are where we find the, the swing voters. So the um, final piece of this puzzle, focusing on the institutions, and, 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 and particularly the, this issue of the GOP advantage, we didn't talk about the House yet. So mm. the the house is kind of a unique situation um insofar as the 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 districts in the house are drawn by mm. politicians. Um could you talk a little bit about that so we often call this process gerrymandering um, yeah. after um uh, Elbridge Jerry the former governor of Massachusetts who famously drew a district that looked like a salamander um, in <laughs> order to to get get the votes he wanted. 
And it's basically, it, it, it's drawing uh, congressional districts in a way that is the most efficient for you to um, win control of those districts. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about the impact of gerrymandering on American politics recently? And also um, what might happen as an outcome of the 2020 election uh, in this area? Mm-hmm. From the Constitution, um, states are given uh, representation in the House of Representatives, um, conditional or indexed by their overall population, right? So Texas has more representatives than North Dakota or whatnot. Uh, But how you divide up Texas into the whatever number of Texas representatives is up has been is left to the state legislature or the state governments. And in most places. Uh, there's been kind of some attempts to to take away this power in some sense. In most cases, it is the state legislature doing the doing the kind of business, right? And as you say, there is this worry, and I think in in many cases it's accurate that politicians are kind of choosing their voters rather than vice versa, right? That they are constructing districts for their own advantage. And to a certain extent, this has been happening in American politics for a very long time. I will say that you know th- this is not always done for kind of nefarious reasons. Um, there are some um, for instance, majority minority districts, where the the idea is to create districts wherein there are sufficient numbers of, say, African Americans, so that they can have, so that community can actually elect a representative who may be African American, who may represent their views better than if they were in a dispersed across uh, 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 other districts, right? And so it can be done for for these other more uh, potentially representative, positive uh, motivations. So, however, there is this this a uh, deep worry that these uh, state legislators do indeed kind of. Uh, uh, create districts to maximize the partisan chances of whoever is controlling the state legislature. Um, what does that effect have on American politics? It does have, I think, very clearly implications for, uh, as you say, potential representation of the mass public. When we start turning to understanding whether you are voting a, a drawing of the districts that would give greater kind of probability of Demo- Democrats or, in that case, Republicans, kind of winning the majority of the districts in the state. And that's kind of where I think gerrymandering has its, it, it, it kind of helps um, distort the potential uh, 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 translation of, of mass level preferences into the composition of legislators in the House. And so in two, so this is done every 10 years, the state legislators redraw the kind of lines uh, around after the US census um, in 2010. Uh, there was the Democrats did really, 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 really terrible in state houses across the country. You have you had a real swing towards Republican legislatures, which redrew many of them redrew uh, state lines to kind of give a little bit more padding for the Republican coalition. Um, in the 2020 state legislative elections, that has basically not been changed. The Republicans still have more state houses than do the Democrats, and so if not you know, a few more perhaps. And so what you're going to see is probably another round of um, gerrymandering, which is going to further pad to or or accentuate the potential advantage of the Republican Party going forward. Um, And so that is, I mean, if you are someone who uh, is worried about the the chances of the Democratic Party to advance a kind of um, not just a policy program, but a legislative program where you actually do things, that's actually going to be a really important limitation on their ability to do so over the next decade, because it just gets harder to win 200, to win a majority in the House when you are dealing with Uh, some number of house seats where they're drawn so as to disadvantage you. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So it's really interesting to think about the ways that um, the advantage the GOP enjoys in these political institutions kind of shapes what's perceived to be the middle ground in American Mm. politics as well. Because, you know, so it's not the case that the GOP has to compete on a level playing field with Democrats in, in order to win elections. And it seems that they they basically take that advantage. And, you know, what one thing they could do with that advantage is that they could then seek to um, promote policies that the American people broadly support. And they would be basically unstoppable, right, if, if they were actually a popular party and they had this advantage. But it seems that instead they... They take a kind of dividend and then they use that to to advance kind of these fringe extreme policies that often don't enjoy the support of of, of the American public. But because of these built-in advantages, they're, they're still able to, to succeed in elections. And then this often leads to the debate over what the Democrats should do, being framed in terms of, well, the Democrats need to do what they have to do to win over centrist voters in order to overcome mm. this um, this advantage. So, you know, if, if you kind of talk to conservatives about the, the kind of inequity that exists uh, in the Senate, then they will say, oh, well, the Democrats could win Kansas, the Democrats could win North Dakota if only they would adopt the policies that, that allowed them to, to do that. Um, but, but then, of course, that, that keeps the center in American politics focused on what these white rural voters consider to be acceptable. So this strikes many Democrats as a pretty grim situation, and they've often placed their hopes for a change on the idea of demographic change. So the idea is that as the demographics of America shift, as it becomes a younger, less white, more urban country, the political strength of rural white voters is going to be undermined and replaced by this new coalition. So um, Stacey Abrams, the former gubernatorial candidate in Georgia, who's done a lot of work to advance voting rights among African Americans, has referred to this new coalition of younger voters, non-white voters, and liberal to moderate whites as the new American majority. But do we actually see evidence in 2020 or other recent elections that this new American majority is really emerging? So that's a good question. And so I think, you know, what your question made me think, I think it's the economist Keynes who, uh, some other economists saying, well, in the, in the long run, something works out. And Keynes said, well, in the long run, we're all dead, right? Um, and so we've been ta- hearing about demographics of destiny and the oncoming democratic uh, majority since I think the, the early 1990s, right? Um, and so it hasn't happened yet. There are substantial long-term demographic patterns that would seem to be conducive to the electoral sub- fortunes of the Democratic Party, right? So we have a really young really large young cohort of Americans, as most countries, right, the millennial and Zoomer generations, a very sizable group of, of individuals um, who are, ex- on average, very, very kind of left and liberal and progressive, at least uh, on some issues. And so in the long run, presuming that they don't, you know, grow, you know, maybe they'll grow a little bit more conservative over time, but as, as sometimes happens, but, you know, that is potentially a long run uh, factor. You do see this this discussion about the long run uh, demographic trends in which the United States will no longer be majority white. And so maybe that, you know, assuming that minority voters continue to vote for Democrats at a at a two to one or higher clip, then, you know, at some point the math will switch. 
Um, now, I, I think there are some reasons to be a little, if, if you're a Democratic kind of consultant or, or candidate, you know, in the now term, in the near term, that's not very reassuring and probably shouldn't be very reassuring um, for a few reasons. Um, and, and then I'll get to this current election. I mean, as you say, you know, we have a set of political institutions, the Electoral College, the Senate, potential gerrymandered districts, which kind of do pad at least currently, the Republican kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 their basement for kind of political power is higher because of these institutions. And so in the long run, raw debt is not very, you know, that's the kind of consideration where you don't, maybe isn't very helpful right now. In this past election, we there is, and I, I think here we should be a little careful because the data, in some cases, the votes are still being counted. Um, this was a very odd election for doing like exit polls and stuff like that. So it, I think we should be careful about making very overly confident assertions about changes in demographic voting right now. But it does seem like, you know, we saw um, increased voting amongst for, for Donald Trump amongst Latino voters in, say, southern Texas and in some parts of Florida, although the Democrats did quite well amongst Latino voters in Arizona and Nevada. So, so, but they're very. We also saw some increased support amongst uh, African American men. It seems like for Donald Trump, and so demographics are not destiny, right? They're, they're you can you can't just sit on your hands and kind of um, hope that the individuals like communities will just vote for you. That's just not how it's going to happen. So I think you know there's some very long term um, patterns that would seem to be consistent with this story, but I wouldn't put too much. Faith as a, as a consultant, if you were a consultant in that right now. Yeah, and a lot of the faith in this idea that's existed on the Democratic side seems to me to have been based on a simplification of the Hispanic community, or actually mm -hmm. even that the very phrase, the Hispanic community, is a simplification. Yeah. We should talk about multiple Hispanic communities. And, you know, when we look at what happened this mm -hmm. time, so it's clear that Trump's um, appeals towards opposing socialism really helped him with Cuban Americans and Venezuelan Americans, although that alone can't explain what happened in Florida. It seems that um, kind of the, although Joe Biden himself has not called for a ban to fracking, but this is an idea that's very present in the Democratic Party, and this seems to have been really harmful in Southern Texas, where many Hispanics have really benefited from the shale boom. And then it also seems that just the, the Hispanic community is not completely isolated from these this process of education polarization and also gender divide as well which has been um, a really notable feature of the electorate's reaction to trump that you know men tend to like him much more than than women do so understanding diversity within groups of non-white voters is crucial to this picture rather than just assuming that they're always going to vote democrat something else i'd like to talk about is turnout Turnout in this election was the highest it's been in about 100 years, which was just over about 65%. And why do you think this was? And do you think it's something that's specific to this election or, or it's something that's going to stick around into the future? So turnout kind of declined between the 1960s and 1990s or so, uh, maybe the early 2000s. Perhaps not as much as many people allege, but it, there was kind of this decline. Starting in the 2000s, we started to see a, a bit of an upswing. Again, not huge, but it kind of started to increase. Um, why? Well, partially that's the story of polarization. Po um, national elections uh, became a lot more competitive, a lot more polarized, a lot more animating. And so it's it's not perhaps surprising that 
you get a few more people to vote. Uh, when every election seems like it could swing, you know, the control of government or it's life or death, we're going to kind of get some more people to turn out. And so from that standpoint, it, it might not be su too surprising if we see, at least in presidential ele election years, kind of a little bit more of this kind of gradual growth over time in this kind of polarized America. I think this year, so this year was a very interesting year <laughs> in many, many ways, right? And so thinking about this, this 2020 is, is perhaps an outlier in some sense. On the one hand, we had um, the coronavirus and COVID and many states allowed or made it easier to vote, to vote by mail and vote early on. Um, the research on this suggests that voting by mail probably by itself doesn't necessarily pump up very heavily because what happens is that a lot of people who would have voted on election day just vote earlier. Um, but there may have been kind of this, uh, you know, people were kind of sitting around the home. It's a little easier to vote. They, they went out and did it. So maybe there was this a COVID spike. I'm not sure. I think a lot of this, though, I mean, it, it's very hard to explain the past four years without invoking the name Donald Trump, right? A lot of it, uh, 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 the mobilization amongst um, the perhaps surprising mobilization amongst uh, for the GOP at the presidential level had to do with uh, Donald Trump, with, with uh, him as, a, as an individual, people coming out to vote for him um, or vote against at least the dastardly Democrats and vice versa. A lot of the kind of this motive uh, mobilization around for the Democrats happened against Donald Trump. It also happened uh, as a, a subsidiary note, again, for this kind of 2020 being a unique year. Uh, there's been a huge debate amongst Democrats in the House about, you know, as we talked about earlier, are we too left, too center, or so on and so forth? Um, and some of this discussion has happened around kind of uh, defund the police or, or, you know, this kind of debate around this. But the summer protest movement probably did help mobilize even more people to come out. So I would expect, you know, 2020 to look a bit of an... Uh, a bit of an anomaly if we had the kind of full-time series going out for a few more presidential elections, but likely turnout will continue to inch up a little bit over the next decade, I would gather, as parties continue to get better at mobilizing people, as this polarized kind of uh, partisan environment continues to supercharge the emotions of politics to get people engaged. Yeah, and I think that this is a really interesting piece of the puzzle. So going into the election this year, the polls led us to believe that Donald <laughs> Trump's coalition had shrank. So it seemed like not so many people were going to... I mean, in raw terms, he wasn't going to get as many votes as he did in 2016. What actually happened is that Donald Trump grew his coalition. So he got more votes than he did in 2016. But what happened was that the Democrats just completely buried him by also, you know, hugely expanding their coalition and their number of voters. And kind of the most interesting part of this story seems to come from suburban areas. So that's where we find the most consequential swings towards the Democrats, and it goes a long way to explaining their victory. And, you know, it's the same story around virtually every large city in America. So what do you think is driving this change in the political identity of suburban voters? I think there's three things we can think about. So first of all, the suburbs, you know, I think if, if, if you're a listener, you, if, if you think American suburbs, you probably think in terms of kind of demographics, uh, heavily kind of white, racially homogenous areas. And in many places, that is the case. But the suburbs have grown more kind of racially diverse and economically diverse over the past 20 years, in no small part because it's become exorbitantly costly to live in urban areas. So people have kind of had, there's kind of a, a, a 
uh, a change in the suburbs for that consequence well. So there's kind of just who is living in the suburbs is a little bit different. Um, and then the second and third things are kind of linked. So the, the, the second thing is that kind of educational polarization. The Democrats have become... Um, their kind of brand is is more friendly, perhaps, to college-educated individuals in the suburbs um, than it used to be, where they're the party of uh, progressive kind of social policies and then some, you know, education spending and so on. But then there's Donald Trump, because if you think of um, the rea- negative reaction amongst uh, suburbanites, a lot of it's being animated seemingly by the brand of Donald Trump, and particularly amongst uh, female voters in the suburbs voting against this 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 gentleman who is uh, this uh, who is so kind of culturally polarizing, right? And so one really big question I, I would have, and I, I do not obviously have the answer because I can't see the future, is is how many of those suburbanites stick around in 2022 and 2024 and so on? You know, we, we might expect a, maybe a little bit more this kind of continual gravitation towards the Democrats, but once Donald Trump's off the well, <laughs> if if he is not a, a a part of the Republican brand in some sense, if he's not running on the ticket, do you see some of these voters kind of gravitate back towards the Republicans because they want you know lower taxes or, or to protect their homes and so on and so forth? Yeah, and an interesting part of this is to do with the degree of um, split ticket voting that seemed to take place in some suburban areas this year. So. In 2018, Democrats flipped a lot of suburban house districts and, and, you know, that was a precursor to the strong performance that they had at the presidential level in the suburbs this year. And it was also, I think, the reason that Democrats and and a lot of observers expected that this strong performance at the presidential Mm. level was also going to translate into a strong performance in the House and Senate elections. But that's not actually what happened. So this year, a lot of suburban voters delivered a split verdict. They voted for Biden for president, but then they also voted for Republican House and Senate candidates. And Mm -hmm. I I think this is interesting in a number of ways. I mean, because firstly, I think it's a a potential answer to the question that you just posed about whether once Trump isn't on the ballot, whether that's 2028 or 2024, you know, whether this, this process is going to continue. Um, and it suggests, you know, that actually it's the presence of Trump on the ballot that that is um, producing this this result at the presidential level. I also think it, it seems to be a, an interesting counterexample of the general trend towards sorting, you know, and, and it's something that we generally say about American politics, that split ticket voting is on the decline because of sorting and, and because of polarization. So do you think that, that this was caused by purely by Trump, and I appreciate this This links a little bit to the answer that you already gave, but I just wondered if you had any additional reflection on, on that. Uh, one thing, and I don't know, I remember, I don't remember who I saw this say, say this, but it was something like, you know, both Biden and Trump had kind of a strategy to, to turn out Republicans, right? And so Biden, so Trump's was, you know, come out and vote for me. And, and Biden's like, well, come out and vote for me, right? It's like, you know, you, you don't have to vote for him, right? Um, and so, probably some of them, some of these Republicans said, okay, fine. I don't like Donald Trump, but I can vote for you, but I'll vote for, you know, Kelly Loeffler or whoever is my Senate candidate um, because I like them better or I like them okay. Or they can be a balance against against you. That's a tough pickle in some sense to to be in for the Democrats. I I think actually here I want to return to something we talked about or something you mentioned earlier This and and I've alluded to this debate, this discussion about, you know, um, the ideological positioning of the parties. And so in some real sense, the nature of American political electoral institutions enable the Republicans as currently 
set up to be a kind of right wing, like fairly extreme right wing party, right? In the, at least in the context of uh, conservative parties in, in Western democracies. But at the same time, forcing the Democrats to be a centrist to a center left party that has to then kind of move into the right end of the spectrum to get, you know, the not just the 51st percentile of votes, but the 52nd, 53rd, 54th, because otherwise they, they're kind of locked out, right? And this kind of, you know, do they have to move to the middle and so on? And so I think in terms of that broader discussion, in, it, you know, there are some potentially quite radical seeming ideas that actually poll extremely well that are like like progressively economic progressive $15 an hour um minimum wages um depending how you set up the question uh, medicare for all at the very least expanding healthcare uh, coverage various changes to increase kind of worker bargaining rights um usually there is usually quite popular various types of of very Power, potentially powerful uh, re- reform policies that are nevertheless pretty left wing could enable Democrats to still maintain some of these voters. Potentially, I, you know, I, I'm not a Democrat consultant and I'm not also a future teller. So, you know, maybe they'd all just get count, call it socialism and people ignore them. But Right. And I think that's a debate we're going to be hearing a lot more about in the coming years, you know, as the Democratic Party tries to figure out how to find a way of maintaining the majority in the House, which is now pretty slim. And also winning a majority in the Senate, winning back the Senate. So unfortunately, we're out of time, but this has been such an insightful conversation. It's given us a lot to think about as we prepare to go through the next election cycle in two years, and then four years, and then onwards until, as Keynes said, we're all dead. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.